finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at that for probably a couple months now. And so the end of chapter 7. Um, one of the things that we need to note as we've walked through this passage is that what God calls us to is excellence in his spirit, not just the minimum standard. So often he addresses the, the Old Testament law and he says, well, yeah, you're right, it's, it's rules and there's more to it. But he says, there is a, a higher way to live. There is a, a standard that the Spirit addresses in our hearts that moves us to behavior that exceeds that minimum law. And in some ways, when we walk through this today, it, I feel like we have to recognize that um, kind of like a test, you know, where you're told at the first of the semester you have this large paper to turn in our project. And some of us got used to going, I can do that on the last day, you know. And, and really, it was the kind of thing, I love that pressure, <laughs> No, but we would put it off, put it off, put it off, and it's the final cram, and it's like, oh, I don't know, yes, I can, oh, I have to, you know, but in Christ, you don't really want to get to the end of life and go, oh, I better cram for this, but rather what he calls us to is recognizing that there is an investment that can be made on a daily basis that chooses excellence in him. And so when, we, when we're walking through, it's, it's not enough to just say, well, yeah, that, that's possible, but here is, is more what he desires. And, you know, I, I can remember walking through that phase where I finally had come to the conclusion, I, I truly believe that God is real. I truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And now what am I going to do with this? Because if, I, if I've embraced that, I can't be waffling anymore in my behavior and, and my values and everything else can't just be attached to this surfing, so to speak, that doesn't quite go anywhere, but just is trying to survive and, and stay afloat. And, and rather, I have to aim myself toward excellence and be pushing in this regard to... to to maximize what this belief really entails. And so this Sermon on the Mount, in some ways, is calling us to that kind of activity. And uh, when we move on now in, in this chapter 7, he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Well, <laughs> the old translation said that. It says, Everyone who asks receives. One who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. He's making a declaration. He's saying God is approachable and he's generous. It, it, our view of God is, is significant in this. But he's saying God isn't going to keep himself obscure and hidden, but he is approachable. And furthermore, there's a generosity about him that responds to our call. Um, he goes on and gives the illustration, you know, 
if somebody asks their father for bread or fish, you know, dad's not going to give them poisonous stuff or rock. You know, he's, he gives good gifts. And he says, if you who are twisted, evil, you know, if you, you who live with a certain amount of perversion in your lives, he says, if you know how to give a good gift, how much more so God who lives in purity. So that's a significant hurdle to get across, right? To say, what's my mindset in regard to the Lord in, in this issue? When we walk through life issues, you know, and we're going, okay, God, eh, I don't know if he's even going to listen. Or, okay, I, I believe you're listening, but I, I know you know who I am and what I've done recently or haven't done. No, there's this, this declaration by Jesus, our God is approachable and he's generous. Tied to this, you know, there's that need then to recognize he is calling us into relationship. He's calling us into dialogue. You know, if you know it's available and you don't make use of it, well, what good is it? It's like saying, there's plenty of food in the fridge, there's plenty of food in the pantry, but I'm really hungry. Well, do something. You know, ask your wife to fix it. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> That's so wrong at so many levels, right? Couldn't re well, I could resist, but I didn't. Um, maybe I could resist. <laughs> what that puts into our laps, though, with God being approachable and generous, is that there's also a responsibility tied to that that says knowing that your God is approachable and generous, then there's, an, a, there's a responsibility to call out and ask and to knock, you know, to, to seek because it's available and it's there for us. He moves on in this chapter, and, and he really, in a sense, revisits something he had addressed earlier when he says, judge not. He comes back and says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the, sums up the law and the prophets. In recognizing that our God is generous and approachable, he says, I, I want your lives to be that way as well. I want generosity to flow from your lives. And so then he links it to the Old Testament law and says, live this way. Live generously. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. Treat them the way that you want to be treated. He's calling us to initiate healthy behavior. He's not saying wait until they treat you well and then do something. But he's saying our lives are about initiating and doing what God has done. God has initiated goodness into our lives. Now he wants us as models of his attitude and character to, to imitate the same way. Then he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. For those who enter it are many. For the gate that is narrow is the hard way and leads to life. Those who find it are few. This is powerful in that it says, in a sense, 
we are part of a minority belief. You, by nature of making this choice, identify yourself with a minority. So in a sense, he's saying the majority are not going to embrace this. That's a challenging statement. I remember walking through this thing of, if God is good, why would most people choose to go to hell? How could hell exist if the majority of people went there? How could a good God allow that to happen? That kind of goes beyond our thinking of what's fair, right? That's something that we're not used to looking at, and yet Jesus, he doesn't waffle around it. He doesn't try to avoid it. He just declares, this is the way it is. Now, if, if we believe that God is sovereign over all things, and he has the absolute right to say, this is how things work, and this is how I've designed it, and this is how it is, then in leaving free choice into our hands, he's saying, you get to choose whether you're going to embrace this or not, but we're not going to change the standard. And that's what we are, in a sense, stepping into. Um, that's in some ways why I don't feel an obligation to say, well, I have to justify my religion to compare it to someone else's, or I have to find a way of making everyone fit. Um, Jesus hasn't made that declaration. What he said is, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so I have to believe that if every knee is going to bow before him, at some point there has to be an embracing of him in faith when we hear of his salvation. Complicated, isn't it? But it's one of those things that he didn't duck, and so we don't necessarily, we shouldn't necessarily duck ourselves, right? Even if it's not a, the common theme or the common thought of the day, it will never be a majority voice. And that's something that is just laid out for us. Okay, he says, beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. They're inwardly the ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. And so, again, he says, even in your religion, there is the potential for those who declare themselves religious and righteous to be teaching false things and to, be, to be, have an outward appearance of grace, but really... Uh, live nothing of that way. He says that's something that you have to watch for. But in that, there's also a responsibility that's put into our laps, isn't there? Where it says you have a responsibility to discern whether you're hearing truth or not. You have a responsibility to look at something and say, is this just calling for an emotional response or even a reasoned response? Or is this just the hype of the moment, or is this really truth? Is this what God is speaking for my life in this time or this instance? And there's a responsibility in the spirit, so to speak, to say, God, what are you wanting me to believe right now? 
What are you wanting me to embrace? What are you wanting me to do? I... I am grateful that God hasn't even chosen to deal with all my sin on day one. But the downside of that is, is that virtually at every season of life, he reveals things to me that need to be transformed. So even now, you know, there are certain things in front of me that he's going, no, we got to deal with this. And I'm going but I've lived with this all my life. Why deal with it now? I'm saved in you. I have your spirit. But he's going, I'm preparing you for something more. And I'm preparing you for eternity as well. So let's take care of this. But I'm very comfortable with the way it is. That's not a good enough excuse in him. So that discerning and and coming to terms with that. That said, then when I look at other lives and I say, hey, you got problems. Is it my responsibility to declare that in every conversation? Well, if God doesn't declare it in every conversation... Maybe I better be asking him, what do you want confronted and what do you want left alone in this moment? It's not an embracing of it, but it's saying, what is your timing and your way? What's your desire here? Sometimes he calls us to mercy. Sometimes he calls us to confrontation. But the, the, the wisdom to choose comes from the Spirit of God. And you have to kind of sort that out and just say, you know what? Um, I'm used to, you know, I, I'm used to just calling things as they are. Well, good for you, but that may not be what God's asking of you in this moment. Yeah, but you don't understand. I love truth. So does he. But he also loves compassion. And he, he finds the right time. You know, there, there's such a beauty to it when we embrace it in our own lives. You know, saying, you know what? You've, you've been very kind to me for not destroying me over this thing or letting my life be destroyed over this thing. But I see now the horror of it, and I need to change in you. Help me. And there's a transformation that, you know, you're going, I... I used to see this thing as valuable. I used to see it as precious. I used to see it as enjoyable. But now it's offensive to me because I know it's destructive overall. I know that it hinders the kingdom of God. I know that it doesn't do what he desires. And there's something that moving into that fullness of truth that we're going, this is awesome in the Lord. Well, we need to have our, our hearts set to seeing that in others as well. And that's, that's what he calls us to. Now, he gives the illustration of a good tree, a healthy tree, and a diseased tree. And he says, uh, you're going to recognize people by their fruits. Matthew seven twenty one, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So he says, even if your verbal declaration is that Jesus is Lord, he says that's not enough. There's got to be a transformation from the inside. You know, we can, that's that, it's like that lip service, right? Jesus is Lord. I'm good. Um, there has to be a whole heart thing because he sees us entirely. And so he calls us to this, to let our hearts be transformed in him. So not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of the Father, in other words, responds to his voice, um, let's look at this idea of the will just a little bit more. When Jesus was teaching the disciples to pray earlier in this passage, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? So he says, if you're, you're wanting to take on a form and you're wanting to pray through critical components in your understanding of the Lord, he says, you pray that God's will be accomplished. So you're praying that his desires are being fulfilled around you, but also through you. You're praying that your own heart is transformed and willing to respond to what he desires and asks. It's interesting that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, preparing to die, says, if possible, take this cup from me. Says, this is not a pleasant moment, and what's in store is, is even worse. You know, the, what I'm about to drink is awful. So, if possible, take this from me. I don't look forward to this. But he says, Not my will, but thine be done. So, he's acknowledging that suffering is at his doorstep. And he is walking within the will of God, but he's saying, I would rather not have to go through this. And yet, he's saying, your will is more important to me than what I want. And it's taking on and embracing that in the Lord. First Peter, you know, Peter, again, was he in, in the hour of crisis during that season, he ran away. But when he comes back and Jesus reinstates him and pulls, then he's willing to sacrifice his life. And he talks about suffering and he says, for the one that suffered, uh, the flesh, um, he lives no longer for his flesh, but for the will of God. So he, he has moved on in, in, in the maturing of his faith. He comes to the point of going, there is a measure where suffering is valuable to our lives because it destroys some of that self-will and that self-push, the, the passions that, are, that rule our life. He says there's a way of that being just pushed aside when we conquer it through this, this struggle. And he says our lives are, are dedicated then to the will of God. There's a, a passage in Romans that... Um, there's a chapter break, but if you were to read it straight through, Paul addresses the sovereignty of God, 
in the end of chapter 11, and he just says, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He says, the way he does things, it goes beyond our thinking. Who's known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? Who, who understands at that depth or that level? He said, it just, that's not us. We don't have that ability to see things from the beginning to end. Who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid? He's the one that owns everything. So are you going to buy him? Yeah, no. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Then he jumps to the next, carries this thought through. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what his good and acceptable and perfect will is. So he says, you commit yourself to him, this sovereign God who knows all and understands all. You give your life as a, a sacrifice unto him. You, get, you lay down your self-will. You, you place yourself before him. And he says, it's going to be revealed to you his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You're going to understand what he desires of you. He's going to lay that out before you. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 7. Again, many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord. So again, Jesus is Lord. We, we declared that. Didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I would have to admit that this is a verse that I'm still unwrapping. I still have questions as to how it all interacts. I, there are things that, that I see that, I, that I, I guess I feel like I have a handle on so far, but there's more to it than what I get. Um, you know, I, I think in all of us, we desire to function in power, right? We desire to be able to, uh, to prophesy and to cast out demons and to do mighty works. And we glory in it when it happens. But in some ways, he's declaring there's more to life than even this. Part of it is, in looking at this going, those things are all done in the temporal. But really, what we're being tuned for is the eternal. Everything that's temporal in this life has limited benefit. So even the miracles done in this life are minimal in comparison to the big picture of eternity. So in some ways he's declaring some who function in great power have yet are living with a lawlessness and a refusal to embrace the fullness of God. That's where I start going, oh, I'm not 
not sure how this all works. <laughs> I wish I could tell you I did. I will go to 1 Corinthians 13, though, and acknowledge that when he says, if I have the tongues, gift tongues of speaker like men and angels, but I have no love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Or he says, if I have prophetic powers and understand mysteries and knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. So in some ways, he's saying there's a priority in life that our loving behavior has more significance to him than even our spiritual abilities, so to speak, or giftings. I would rather it be the other way around because in some ways it'd be like just achieving something and doing, but it doesn't really cost me the same depth that love does. Because love is an everyday activity and it's connected to virtually everyone around me. And it would be easier just to here and there do something special, you know? And really, in the way of acclaim, you're the big dog if you can do those things. And everybody glories in it. But he's not necessarily that concerned about your rep. You know, it's, there's more to it. It's interesting in the Old Testament when Isaiah takes on fasting, he says it's not even about, you know, just doing without food, but he says, really, loose the ch chains of injustice. You know, take care of the poor. He, he, he addresses some things that go on. If, if you're trying to walk religiously and just, you know, be pious in church and, and even in life, you know, to walk, holy, but you're not really connecting and, and involving yourself and giving unto others, it's kind of empty. It just doesn't get it done. And so there's that, again, it's coming back, and God, what do you want from me in this moment? What do you desire? And is there something that I can say or do or give that would be beneficial in another's life. And, you know, it, it takes time, which we guard jealously. You know, if I, if I go participate with them, well, then I'm not going to get my projects done. Or if I give what I have, then I'm not going to be able to buy what I want to buy. And we have to make those choices saying what he does is good and his intent is to bless us and to give us all that we need to do that plus because he's generous. And so we have to trust that even if I give away, he's going to give back. And even if I spend my time, he's going to open the door time-wise for me to get done what I need to. Simple things. This Every fall, I go into a tizzy right before it snows. There are things I want to get done, 
And I just, I, I feel that squeeze. And <laughs> is it really important? No, but it's important to me. And I, I have to make these decisions that say, I'll do what's right, whether I get that project done or not. The last couple of weeks have been unusual, haven't they, weather-wise? And it's almost one of those seasons where I feel like the Lord's been telling me, I told you. <laughs> I knew what the weather was going to be before I asked you to do what I told you to do. But how often do we trust him enough to, to let that happen or to back off from our agenda? That's kind of what we're being called to through this passage. And then connected to these verses, I want to take another thought out of this. He says, you workers of lawlessness... You know, sin is associated with lawlessness at our being lawless. But he's saying, you know, you're declaring that because you did a lot of grand things and you called me Lord, that's good. But he says, there was an evil about your life that you didn't address. And, uh, you know, like I say, I'm still kind of trying to unwrap this, but I... I uh, I'll read a few verses to you. 2 Timothy. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. See, he said, depart from me, I never knew you. He says, the Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. 1 John 3 and 4. The last part of that. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If the pattern of our life is to continue to not address our sin, then we've got, to, we've got an issue. Now, I, I'm still of the thought that, you know, if anyone has sinned, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He made that same declaration earlier in the book, but if, if our direction is not changed by the transformation of salvation, something's wrong, and we need to, to look at that. Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. The whole idea of training is that it's ongoing, Right? It's not the immediate, but it's continual. Training us to, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he's, again, if you look at the scope of this passage, chapters 5 through 7, he has not just said, uh, you know, the law, well, it was good for the Old Testament, but we're going on. Essentially, he's raising the bar and saying that the law of the Spirit teaches us to live a standard that's even higher because he addresses through his Spirit things in us that need to be transformed both in our lives and in our culture, 
and he calls us to those deeds. So he finishes this passage. He talks about the wise and the foolish builders. He says, one built on sand, the other built on rock. It was um, interesting for me when we moved up into this area to find that most houses are built on sand. Um, it doesn't fit to this illustration very well, but uh, it's a, a normal building procedure, and it works if you're not building on the side of the hill and it's all sliding down, right? Or you're, you're building on a, a riverbed and it's going to get washed away. Um, but the point of this particular thing is, for that day and in that place, it was a whole lot build, better to build on rock. And he's just saying, in this situation, he says, choose how you're going to build your life. Choose where you're going to establish the pillars of your life. Choose carefully how you're going to put things together because you don't want it all falling apart at the end. You don't want it to crumble on you. You want it to endure and last. He says that's the opportunity you have. So again, this idea is God has opened the door. He's generous and gracious and approachable. But that means that there's a responsibility that, that is placed on our lives to step into that generosity and to step into that approachableness and to say, what are your desires? And to listen for his will and to walk into that and to choose the, the path that honors him. Praise the Lord. Thank you for this passage. It speaks life. Help us to bring it through an application. Amen. I want to uh, just bring a final thought about walking through a narrow gate. In some ways, I want to live my life fat, not, not referring to weight. I like that too at times. But um, I want to bring my posse with me, so to speak. I want my circle of friends to come through the gate, but there isn't necessarily room for the whole group to walk through. I have to walk through that by myself. Sometimes I want my possessions all around me, that security that I feel of having plenty, so to speak, and yet to walk through a narrow gate, I don't get to carry it all with me. Sometimes I have to address, am I willing to release the thought of relationship or relationship with some and even embrace that profound sense of loneliness that might accompany this moment for the glory of walking through the gate and knowing God. I mean, am I willing to be lonely for the, the, the short term to be willing to have the blessing of the Lord, so to speak? But that's kind of what things boil down to. Am I willing to live skinny, so to speak, to walk through this gate, knowing that it's a good choice, knowing that the other side is much more valuable, but it's still appropriate 
that I shed some of those things. So Lord, help us. Uh, each of us has different issues, right? Each of us have different things that we would need to set aside to run this thing all out. And each of us knows, because of the presence of God speaking to our hearts, what those choices are. So God, give us courage and boldness to do such a thing. May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May discover with joy that you are approachable and generous. Now as each one attempts to build their lives on solid ground, I ask that you give them wisdom as to what choices should be theirs and the courage to walk forward in those decisions. As each one goes into the community, give them words of life to speak over others, enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom, gift them with the supernatural. We lift it up and exalt it, our Lord, we pray. We love you this day. Thank you.